we'll shift gears uh, and, and move into uh, the scripture this morning. I'd like for you, uh, if you would, to take out your Bible and turn with me uh, to James chapter 1. James is over in the New Testament. If you're a person who is not real familiar with your Bible, please don't let that stop you at all. Uh, I hope you brought one this morning, and if you didn't, I hope you'll get in the habit of doing so. If you happen to need a Bible, uh, please let me know. We'd be happy to help you find one that's either affordable or if it's something beyond uh, what you can afford at this point, we'd be happy to help provide one for you. But James is in the New Testament. The Bible's divided into two parts, Old and New Testament. And the New Testament's the second half of that. James is in actually about the latter third of the New Testament, right after the book of Hebrews. And so if you can find that, if, uh, if not, then go to your table of contents. Certainly, I'll help you out. We're going to be looking this morning, starting uh, in verse 13 of James chapter 1. I really believe, and maybe you would agree, that we live in a world that, that really doesn't take temptation or sin very seriously at all. In fact, it's something that's sort of flaunted out there. You, you watch, agree if you watch any television whatsoever, advertisements, shows, so on, and, and you know that it's not something that is, oh, I guess taboo anymore to put temptation out there to sell things according to that. And, and certainly it's not just temptation of the sexual nature, it's temptation in a variety of ways. It's not taken seriously anymore. Sin is not taken seriously anymore. You know, sin is now just a mistake. Uh, you know, I made a mistake. But I, I, I shouldn't have done that. Well, and certainly that's true. Sin is far more than a simple mistake. As we learned a few weeks ago in our series on sin, sin is, is at its core rebellion against God. Not just a, an innocent mistake. It's rebellion against God. And so we say that, though, in our society, and, and it, it doesn't go over well. And to an extent, you say that in the church. It doesn't go over well. We don't like that. We don't like to hear that. Why? Because that counteracts what we're doing in our lives, does it not? And so we, we don't like those things. We don't take temptation. We don't take sin very seriously. I, I think the reason we don't is because we don't take God seriously. God has been put on a shelf. God has been sort of shoved into the corner. God has been put into the recesses of our hearts and lives, if he is there at all. And certainly in our society, God has been pushed off into the margins and been marginalized to the point where now God is sort of a cliche, it's a joke. And certainly we know God is not that, but that's the way our society views him to a large extent. He is certainly not someone to answer to, according to our society. He's maybe somebody to rely on in tough times. God, help me out just a little bit. Lord, would you... Would you get me through this? God, hey, listen, uh, you know, if you don't mind, can you do this? That's sort of like Santa Claus or a fairy or a genie or something that you just wish upon or hope for, and there you have it. Certainly not someone we take very seriously as a whole in our society. And unfortunately, I think that's permeated to an extent anyway, the church. I certainly speak of the church in general, and uh, I guess to a degree, I'm sure, because we are a church, speak to Elm Grove, to us in particular, that many of us probably have lost our focus on the seriousness of temptation, the seriousness of sin, and ultimately that's because we've lost our focus on the seriousness of God. Now, does that mean that God is serious all the time? That's not what I'm saying. I believe God has a sense of humor. And if you don't believe me, just look around. <clears throat> You all say amen because you're looking at me right now, okay? So, listen, I know it goes back and forth, you know, all the time. 
It's not yet football or basketball season, so the UofL and UK jokes aren't in yet, but I'll get there. And so anyway, not, you know, seriously, I believe God has a sense of humor. So God is not serious all the time, necessarily. God has a personality. We are created in God's image, and I believe part of that is reflected in our personalities. But at the same time, I believe it's necessary that we take God seriously, that, that we truly believe that what he says in his word is true. Not a great suggestion, not just good self-help kind of reading, not, not just good advice, not something to read just if you have a bad day because, well, you know, I need a little pick-me-up. Let me go to one of the Psalms and, and really get encouraged. Not, not that. I'm talking taking God seriously. And it's as a result of that that I really believe we don't take temptation or sin seriously. I came across something this week that honestly, I was repulsed by it. It it at first would sound sort of humorous, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is how our society views Jesus. I saw a poster, and it was a picture of Jesus, and it said, Jesus, how cool is he? He's born, I get presents. He dies, I get candy. And at first you think, hmm, no, that's sort of, well, maybe that's a joke. But isn't it true that our society, by and large, views Jesus as sort of like that? He's born, we get some presents on Christmas. Hey, it's great. But he dies at Easter. Well, hey, I get some candy in the Easter basket. We don't take Jesus, we don't take God very seriously anymore. We may claim to know Jesus, but oftentimes we refuse to be conformed to be like him. You know, as the Bible says that God's purpose in each Christian's life is to conform us to his son. That means that when you read about Jesus, what he said, what he did, who he was, and how he acted and how he responded and what his life was about, that's God's goal for you. It's not for some spiritual elite. It's not for just the pastor or the deacons or the people who collect the offering of a Sunday school fee. It's not for that. It's for each Christian to be conformed to be like Jesus. So many of us claim that we are Christians, we do know Jesus, and yet how many of us truly yield ourselves to say, you know what, Lord, because I know you, you do whatever you want. I take you seriously. Many of us claim genuine faith, but we run away when trouble comes. Through the book of James we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, talks about what do you do when trials happen? Now, you've probably known somebody who, they, they get on fire, it seems, for Jesus. Man, they, they, nothing can stop them. It's, it's all they want to think about and talk about, and the least little thing happens, and you can't find them. And it's not just about getting somebody to come back to church. That's not the point. The point is, do they really know Jesus if it just takes a little thing just to run them off from their faith, so to speak? Is their faith genuine? Is it authentic? We claim to love Jesus, but many times we don't live in the way that he modeled, in the way that he commanded. I think we sometimes fail to take God seriously, and as a result, we don't take sin and temptation seriously. I want you to look with me at the scripture. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18 is where we'll focus this morning. Look with me at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above. 
coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth, so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. We, as the Bible says here in verse 14, when each is tempted, we are all tempted. You realize we have just a few things that bring us together. One is that we're human. Another is that we're all tempted in a variety of ways because we're human. No one in this room can claim, well, I've never been tempted to do a single thing. Well, that's a lie. Some of us may claim I've been tempted a little less, maybe so. I've been tempted a little more, maybe so. But all of us can claim and stand on solid ground and stand on common ground even that we have all been tempted. He said, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. Now, certainly, James has highlighted for us already that Authentic Christianity is revealed often through how you deal with difficult times. The testing of your faith, he says there in the first part of this book. So we've seen how the testing of your faith, those trials, really reveal how authentic your faith is. And he goes to another level this morning as we read, when he says not only does the trial in your life, the, the various things you face, reveal the authenticity of your faith, but also temptation does. Authentic Christians deal with temptation in a particular way. What does the Bible say about that? You'll see on the back of your outline, or the back of your bulletin, there's a little way you can follow along. Some of you like to do that. Some of you get annoyed because I mention it. Either way, I'm going to mention it. Love you. So if you're not annoyed by that, turn your bulletin over. All right? And you can follow along there. I'd like for you to look just at the very beginning. You'll see the main point of this morning's message. What does the Bible say in general? It says this, that authentic Christians, authentic Christians take temptation and sin seriously. Why? Because they take God seriously. Authentic Christians, folks of real faith, folks who truly know the Lord, take sin and temptation seriously. Why? Because they take God seriously. I want to break it down this morning quickly for you and, and focus on taking Temptation and sin, seriously, you'll see that on one side of your outline, and then taking God seriously. I believe they work hand in hand, and I believe James shows us how and why we should do just that. So why then should we take temptation and sin seriously? Why? Because we take God seriously. How then do we take temptation and sin seriously? You'll see they're going down in those boxes, there's a fill in the blank, and then some space below it. I'd certainly encourage you to follow along with what will be on the screen and to make your own notes as well. First thing, how do you take temptation and sin seriously? First thing is to own it. Own it. And you'd say, well, what does that mean? Well, look with me again at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. What's happening in this particular verse? Who is being blamed? God. But what's going to do is a shifting of responsibility. And you say, well, I would, I would never do that. Listen, I always own up to what's going on. No, you don't. Neither do I. We look for someone else to blame. You know, over in, in Genesis chapter 3, if you remember when Adam and Eve were tempted, and then God shows up on the scene after their sin, he goes to Eve, or he goes rather to Adam first, excuse me, and he says, what is it that you've done? What does Adam say? Well, listen, I, I sinned, and God, I... Um, I, I'm sorry, I know it was wrong, it's my responsibility. And it doesn't say that in my version. Maybe in your version it does. You had you know, a different translation. What does he say? 
that woman, that fellas, that woman, he says, but what does he say? That woman that you gave me. Who's he blind? God. Hmm. He passes right by Eve and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's he go to? God? Listen, you had your pick of any woman you could give me. I mean, good grief, you know. And you gave me her, God. Thanks a lot, you know. He blamed God. And then and then Eve, he goes to Eve, and, and God says, what is this that you've done? Now, who's she point to? The serpent. Who created the serpent? God. Who's she blame? God. Hmm. James says, don't, don't, don't think that when you're in a trial, that somehow that the testing of your faith is a temptation from God. Don't believe that just because your circumstances get a little tough, that God is enticing you to evil. Certainly there are times, as you can well attest, I'm sure, that, that life gets hard and you're tempted to do things that are contrary to what God would have you do. And I'm not just talking about financial pressure or things like that. I'm talking about the various trials that you face. You have a hard day. And what are you tempted to do? Tell your boss about it in a not-so-nice fashion. Been there and done that? Say, no, no, I've never been there, never done that at all. That's right. You know, you, you, you're struggling in your marriage, and what's your temptation to do? To blame everything on your spouse, to, to whine and complain, about why did you give me this person, and if they would do this, and if, and that, and on and on and on, and we're tempted to try to fix them, and to talk them into being a different way, and maybe we're tempted to go do something that we wouldn't normally do, and Temptation comes in a variety of ways, and often it can come because we're facing some tough times. We're tempted to do things in that that are contrary to what God would have us do. James makes it clear, look, when that happens, understand this trial is not so that God is enticing you to evil. He's testing your faith to strengthen you, to make you the person he wants to be. And he says, so own your temptation. Where does it come from? You know, our, as I mentioned, our tendency is to pass blame or rationalize or justify what we've done and make excuses for why we give in. So who then is at fault in the middle of our temptation? Well, it's not other people. And I realize that many of you, particularly some of our, of our young folks, would say, well, you know, I, I guess I kind of felt like I had to do that because it seemed like, you know, that was kind of the thing that was going on. And you may not come out and say that, but that's a lot of reasons why you operate the way you do you realize nobody can make you do anything? I mean, you know, let, let's go worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario is they threaten you, you're going to have to do something. They threaten you, they're going to kill you if you don't. They still cannot make you do it. Because if they kill you, you're dead, and they can't make you do it even then. You with me on that? Take your worst case, and nobody can make you do anything. Nobody controls your will. So it's not somebody else's fault that we give them a temptation. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what is out there. It doesn't matter what's on television. It doesn't matter what my coworker says. It doesn't matter anything else. Nobody can make me do anything. Well, what about the devil? The devil made me do it. You ever, you ever use that line? You ever heard that line? Oh, the devil made me do it. You know how Satan has no control over your will whatsoever? None. Does he bait the hook sometimes? Sure. But can he force you to do anything? No. So unfortunately, nobody else makes you do it. The devil didn't make you do it. James makes it clear it wasn't God either. You say, well, you know, I really don't, I don't blame God. I mean, I, you know, I realize that, you know, I, yeah, I, I sort of tend to blame everybody else, or I kind of blame Satan, you know, oh, boy, I'll be glad when Satan's gone and God crushes him so I won't fall into sin anymore. And James says, don't blame God. How do we do that? Well, God will have a trial. 
God created the circumstances that I'm in. You know, God put me together with this particular person that I'm married to. God, God won't give me a different job. God, you know, allowed me to lose my job. God's put me in this situation, so as a result, I don't have any choice but to act the way I'm acting. And in blaming our circumstances, who really are we blaming? God allowed this. God created that. God's given me more than I can handle. I, this is just my outlet. So James makes it clear God is not to blame. What he allows is meant to strengthen us, as I said, not to cause us to sin. And why does he say that? He says here in verse 13, he says, God is not the cause. Why? For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Now, the idea there that, that uh, James uses is when he says God is not tempted by evil, it means he has no experience with it. God, God does not deal with it. it, it is, he is impervious to evil. He is so completely holy, there is nothing evil within him whatsoever. He has no experience with it. And you say, well, you know, it, okay, well, big deal. If God's, you know, it's great, God is holy, but, you know, clearly I mean, he could put something in somebody's path that may tempt them. If he were to do that, then that would mean that God would ultimately delight in seeing someone sin, which would make him unholy. And so as a result, we know based both upon God's character and upon his actions, God is impervious to evil, nor does he want anyone else to fall into that. So he says in this verse, God's not responsible. He hates sin. He would never lead anybody into it. The truth is, we only need ourselves. It says here in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by what? His own evil desires. We only need ourselves. A baited hook. <laughs> and when those meet, there you have it. Our evil desires are to blame. Can I have those desires, you may say, those evil desires and still be a Christian? Well, goodness, what do I do if... I'm a Christian, and I really believe that I am. I've asked Jesus to come into my life. I'm confident that he lives inside of me. I've done my best to live in obedience, but I've still got some stuff inside of me that rears its ugly head, and I really don't understand it. Can I still have those desires and be a Christian? And I want to say to you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And Paul said over in Corinthians, he said, that, you know, the things that I want to do, I, I don't do, and the things that I I don't want to do, that's what I do. He talks about this battle that rages inside. Do you have a new nature? Yes. But your body was not drowned when you went under the water for baptism, all right? I didn't hold you under this morning, ladies, until I saw bubbles. So even those young ladies this morning that have been raised to a brand new life, the Bible says, because of their salvation, they're still going to face the battles of what the Bible calls the flesh, human nature. And that spirit nature that Jesus gives you when he places his Holy Spirit in you trumps that over and over. But there still is a battle that will be fought. And so we know that, yeah, you can still be a Christian and deal with these things. And so James here is not writing to just people who don't know Jesus at all. He's writing to Christians and saying, look, when these things come up in you, here's what you have to do about them. Obviously, there are a variety of temptations, just like there are a variety of trials. We I guess mostly we associate temptation with sexual temptation, but James really here doesn't, doesn't specify. He just says, don't, don't say that you're being tempted by God. A temptation is simply an enticement to sin. It's a lure. He uses some, some terminology here talking about desires, our lusts, our appetites, the things that are just sort of in us, that we, we desire something. We, we want something that is uh, enjoyable. Most of the time, our evil desires are just simply a twisting of something that God has created to be good inside of us. You think about it. 
we have a desire for sleep. But if you if you feed that desire in an unhealthy way, what are you? You're lazy. You're a bomb. It's a great desire. But if taken too far, you're a lazy bomb. Isn't that fun? The next time you oversleep, I don't know, the pastor said I was a lazy bomb. That's not what I'm talking about. Clothing. You know, we have, a, we have a desire and need for clothing, but some of us get so caught up in, in maintaining our image by what we wear that our desire for clothing gets twisted. Our desire for stuff gets twisted, and what do we do? It controls then our budget, our time, our focus, our mental energy. Think about it. It's a temptation. We have a desire for and a need for shelter, for a place to live. And certainly the last night or two has shown us we need some shelter. Isn't it true? Some of us, we take that desire and we let it run wild and we have to have bigger and better just simply because we have to have bigger and better, not necessarily because we need that or even that God has provided for us to have that. We just have to have it. You see how the desire can get twisted. We desire for thirst. We have to drink. But many people, maybe even here, folks you know, have been really taken further than they ever wanted to go because they could not control their desire for a drink. We have a desire for food. But what happens if you are a chronic overeater? The Bible says that is gluttony. So it's a perfectly natural desire, but when twisted and tempted, it can become different. Certainly we have built into us a natural desire for sex. But it can easily be perverted. And Satan certainly wants to do that. We have a desire to have our needs met. But the world is full of selfish people who have twisted that desire to think now the world revolves around them and everyone else is just sort of living in it. We have a desire for friends. The Bible is clear that God has created us for the need and the desire for relationship. But isn't it true that sometimes that desire gets twisted and we'll do anything we can to hold on to the friends we have? We'll say anything, do anything, go to the furthest degree, no matter if it's right, wrong, or indifferent. We'll do whatever we can. And so sometimes it turns into gossip because we know we have to do that around a certain friend. Sometimes it turns into just a way to impress people with how you act. We have a desire for self-worth. And I think that's a healthy desire. Need to know where you stand with God and who you are. Sometimes that desire can get twisted. And when someone else seems to take a front seat to our back seat, we get angry. We feel a little insecure. Certainly we have desire for work. The Bible makes it clear it's good to work hard. And it's good. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it's not twisted when we neglect our families. When our focus is on merely making money or just simply climbing the ladder, then it's out of balance. We have a desire for security both physical and financial and so on. That desire can get manipulated, and we become manipulators and greedy, and we cheat our way to whatever we think we deserve. The truth is, if we take temptation and sin seriously, we'll own up to it and realize, you know what? This comes from inside of me. It doesn't matter my circumstances. It's my own desire that has caused me to go into this temptation and into sin. That's the starting point. You own it. The truth is, if we do that, we'll also, the next thing, do our best to stop it early. I find this particular verse fascinating in a lot of different ways. Verse 15 says this, 
Well, let's start in verse 14. But each person is tempted what when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Do you see the, the slippery slope? James spends a verse and a half talking about how quickly something goes from desire to sin. From sin to destruction. And certainly it doesn't happen just like that all the time. You realize most of the time sin is a process. There's some rationalization, justification that takes place. But it is a slippery slope from temptation to destruction. Why is that? Well, why should we stop it early? Why? Because we know where it leads. Well, if you take God seriously, you'll take his word seriously, and then you'll take James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 seriously. And you'll understand that temptation can quickly lead to sin, and sin's only purpose is destruction. Sin. There is no such thing as an innocent temptation or an innocent sin. It will eventually take you further than you want to go. And sin's only outcome is death and destruction. Sin. You lie to yourself all day long. And, and, and many of us do. You can justify it and rationalize it and say, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. But if you take God seriously, if you do, and I pray that you will, if you do, you'll understand sin is a big deal. Temptation is a slippery slope. You have to stop it early. What are we trying to stop? He says you're, you're drawn away and enticed. He uses some some hunting and fishing terms. Now, I would not insult a real hunter or fisherman by calling myself one. But some of you are. And you go out, and you are hunting or you're fishing, and you do all you can to lure whatever you're hunting close enough to whatever your weapon of choice is that particular day, a gun, a bow, a hook, whatever it may be, so that you can lure them from safety, get them out into the open, take a shot, have them latch on to the hook, whatever it may be, and you've got them. And what do you do? You pull the trigger. You reel it in. That's the, that's the purpose. Most of the time, you don't just sit there and look at it. You reel it in. You take the shot. You try to kill it. He uses those terms to talk about how we, we're drawn away. We're, we're, we're hunted. We're, we're lured. By our evil desires. He uses those terms. I find it sort of interesting. He says we're drawn away by it. Our emotions get involved. You ever watch a television commercial? Next time, next time you watch TV, it won't take you long. Pay attention to how many different commercials try to draw on your emotions in one way or another. And, and you know, and, and even on the on the things that really probably should not draw on your emotions. You should draw on your intellect. I mean, think about it. When do you sell cars for a living? If I'm going to buy a car, I should, as a customer, want to have the right car that, that makes the most sense in my intellect for safety and features and whatever it is I want. I should not get hung up on a car just because I'm emotionally attached to it. But let me tell you, Wendy, Wendy's going to tell you all that stuff. But the Ford Motor Company guys who do their marketing, they are geniuses. Why? They are. They, they're geniuses. Why? Because they want your emotions. Why wouldn't they? If you can get emotionally tied to that, some of you are. 
you're a Ford person or you're a Chevy person or you're a Dodge person. Why? Because you're emotionally tied. And they, now listen, they've made, they made, they've been made, maybe making the greatest cars. I have no idea who makes the greatest cars. I've driven a variety of them. I like the one I got right now. But they may not make the greatest cars, and you're still going to buy it. Why? Because my dad did. My granddaddy did. Everybody in my family does, and I'm not going to break from that. They disown me. Isn't it true, though? My goodness. Now, listen, I make light of that. Certainly, Wendy is a great sales lady, and there's nothing shady about her at all. But the truth is, man, we, we get hooked by things. Watch TV next time. And you just watch how many commercials draw you in with their emotions. That's the whole point. If I were advertising, what would I do? I'd try to do the same thing. And that's what it is with temptation. When we let it get into our emotions, when we begin to, to feel an attachment to that temptation, whatever it may be. I went through a list of them earlier. It's going to be specific to you. You're going to be emotionally attached to something that maybe someone else would find repulsive. The truth is, we let our emotions get involved. He says we're drawn away and enticed by our own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it moves from our emotions to our intellect. We begin to think about it and rationalize it and figure out how much we really do need whatever it is that's lingering out there for us to take hold of. And we begin to spend time with it. And that desire leads into not only something that is drawing us, but something we're trying to figure out how to make happen, whatever that may be. So that's that slippery slope. We move from emotions to our intellect and trying to make a decision and trying to scheme and figure out a way to make it happen. And then it moves into our will. When we've made a decision at that point, it says when it is fully grown, it, 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 when, it, when it gives birth, rather, desire does, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. The slippery slope eventually leads to the creation of a murderer. Sin. A murderer. I don't have to tell you that sin will destroy your life. It'll destroy your marriage. Uh, let me tell you, it, it will absolutely destroy your marriage. If you are a person who cannot control your lusts and appetites for whatever it is, material stuff, sexual things, you can't control your, your tone, the way you talk, it will destroy your marriage. Some of you there right now. It'll destroy you. Sin is a murderer. That's its only purpose. It'll destroy you. If you, don't, if you don't believe me and keep going down the path, you're going and you'll find out. Look around at other people who can tell you stories. I could do the same thing. How many of our lives have been destroyed in marriage, in our families, in our jobs, and whatever, whatever it may be, wherever you go on a weekly basis, how many lives have been destroyed by sin? Guarantee you every one of them that didn't stop it early. They're going to be destroyed. You will not experience what God has designed for you if you allow that slippery slope to continue. Why? Because it creates a murderer. That's what sin is. Where did all that start, though? He says, each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own evil desires. It starts at the emotional level. You know how to make, how to avoid making impulse decisions? Back away. Ever been there? You ever been to yourself? Oh, man, I really need that. Whatever it may be. You ever, you ever bought something? I have. Good grief. Listen, listen. I know you're, you're holier than I am. But, listen, I bought stuff on impulse. You know the best thing to do is just back away, take a day or two, pray about it. See if you really, really need that, whatever it may be. Big, small, in between, whatever. 
Same thing with sin. Same thing with temptation. Starts at the emotional, mental level. We've got to stop temptation and sin there. You know, you realize we cannot stop. We cannot stop sin on the behavior level. You can try all you want to stop a particular habit. I'm just, I'm just going to really do it this time. You ever tried to do that? You know what happens? You didn't address the root of the problem. You know those weed killer commercials where they say kills the root? Why? Because it'll grow back if you don't. If you don't address it at the emotional level, why am I drawn to this? Why is this getting to me? Not, why did I do that? Let me just stop that. You don't address it where it starts, and you'll never stop it. How then do you stop temptation and sin from overtaking you? Simply, you learn your desires and your triggers. Learn them. You already know what they are. Fellas, ladies, you know what they are. You know what you're drawn to. You know what it is that during a particular day triggers you and awakens those desires, whatever they may be in you. The desire to run your mouth. The desire to, to say things and do things you wouldn't normally do or you know are wrong. The desire for, for sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. Those kinds of desires. You, you know what it is. And you know the triggers, the people, the places, the things, the conversations. You know those things. So identify them and avoid those desires and triggers. Avoid those things. If you're a person who can't stop spending money every time you go to the mall, stop watching commercials. It's not a matter of going to the mall. Stop watching commercials. Turn the television off. Very practical stuff today. Don't grow, isn't it? I want you to know, as James had mentioned, just as a side note, you realize in this particular letter he calls them brothers, brothers and sisters over and over. No, this comes from the heart of the pastor. Not from somebody who just wants to fire at the crowd. I hope you understand my heart today. I love you and care for you. I really believe that in our church, as individuals and collectively, if we'll address these things on the level that God says to do it, the sky's the limit for what God can do here. The sky's the limit for what God can do in your life. So you learn your desires and triggers, and you yield them to God. You realize in this process, he says that he goes from desire, and when his desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, he gives birth to death. You realize whose name is not mentioned anywhere in there? God. He's conspicuously absent from that process. Why? Because we don't want anything to do with God in that process. And God will not associate with the process. We have to yield our desires to Him. It also uses terminology of conceiving a child. And with sensitivity, I would say to you, how do you stop temptation? How do you stop sin? Don't get intimate with them. Don't spend much time around them. Don't allow them into your home. Don't allow them into your heart. Don't spend time looking at those things, whatever it may be. Don't get intimate with temptation. Why? Because it will conceive. And it will give birth to sin, the Bible says. And sin will eventually give birth to that murderer. So don't get intimate with them. Authentic Christians take temptation and sin seriously because they take God seriously. And I want to close with these two things about God. How then do you take God seriously? The first is this. Remember God's standards. Remember God's standards. In all of this, it's sort of implied that God is behind the scenes, and here he is showing himself to be holy. There's no evil in him, James says. He's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. He is holy. He's not trying to get you to sin. It says later in this passage, there is no shifting. There's no variation. It means he's the same 
all the time. He is holy and perfect. That's his standard for himself, and that's his standard for us. Holiness. Purity. How do you remember God's standard? One is through thinking about his holiness. The other is by trusting him. Maybe you're taking notes under that. Trusting him. God's command has always been those people trust him. You know, temptation is really a matter of do you trust God or not? Do you trust God to meet that particular need in the way that he sees best, or are you going to do it on your own? Trust God. Remember God's standard is holiness, a standard of trust, a standard of doing it his way. You trust God, you'll do it his way. You remember God's standards, and secondly, you access God's power. Access God's power. And I'll write down the reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says that no matter what temptation you face, it's something that someone else is going through as well, and that in the middle of that temptation, God will provide a way out. He'll give you power. He'll give you strength in the middle of that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in all the same ways that we're tempted in, and yet he was without sin. Realize that the same Jesus that overcame all of that stuff from the time we read about his first temptation in Matthew chapter 4, all the way through his crucifixion and resurrection, that same Jesus who overcame temptation over and over lives inside of every Christian, which means what? That you have access to the same power that sustained him while he was here on earth. We have access to that. We have access to the power that can help us overcome temptation and sin. We access that by the Word of God. This stuff is very simple. Psalm chapter 119 says that I have hidden your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. There's something powerful about the word of God getting into your life that keeps you from sin and temptation. The word of God. It's how you train yourself to understand what sinful desires are. How do you know right from wrong? The Bible says it's good for teaching you that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 said the Bible is good for teaching us right from wrong. We access God's power also through prayer. It's in that that we gain strength. We gain sensitivity to God's Spirit. We access God's power by getting His perspective, remembering that slippery slope of temptation and sin. And I believe we also access God's power by being around godly people. There's something about going through life with someone. Proverbs says it's iron sharpening iron. We strengthen one another. When we live in a way that is godly and holy, we can help bring others along with us. And so I encourage you, get someone who can hold you accountable in a particular area of your life where maybe you fall over and over and over again. Get some support in prayer, some support in words from other people, some support from looking at their example. Again, authentic Christians, I believe James makes it clear. They take sin and temptation seriously because they take God seriously. So I ask you, how seriously do you take God? I think it will be evidence in how seriously you take temptation and sin. And maybe today you say, you know what, I, I really, I, I, I'm face-to-face with my need to take God seriously. Maybe for some of you, as you witnessed our baptisms earlier, you realize, I need to take God seriously about what He says in the Bible about salvation. That it comes by His grace alone. That means we didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. 
There is nothing we can do to earn God's love or His salvation. It is a free gift, the Bible says. What do we do in return? The Bible says we simply believe. We turn from our old way, believing in a new Savior, Jesus Christ. We turn and believe. Maybe that's what you need to take seriously today. It's a salvation message that you are a sinner. And that apart from God's salvation through Jesus Christ, that you'll spend eternity apart from Him. And it will be forever. And it will be torment, the Bible says. And maybe today you need to take seriously that and give your life to Jesus Christ, placing your faith in Him. Maybe you're a person who says, you know what, I'm, I'm already there. And so I ask you, how seriously are you taking the temptation and your sin? How seriously? Because if you really take God seriously, you'll do what He does and take that other stuff seriously. Have you owned up to your temptation? Have you owned up to your sin? Are you flirting with it? Are you getting intimate with it? Maybe it's time today to repent. Not a word we like to use. It's a strong Bible word, repent. A lot of preachers will throw that at you, but I want you to know the Bible comes with it and He says, over and over, Jesus goes, repent. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Turn around. Turn to what is truth, what is life. Turn from it. And read you the slippery slope again. Each person is tempted. When he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Temptation is a slippery slope. Pray that you'll take it seriously. That you'll take sin seriously. Because you take God seriously. Would you bow with me for prayer? If you're a person this morning who is consumed by temptation and sin, there's a way out. You don't have to live defeated. It's not the life God has called you to. There is hope. There is strength. But it is only in Jesus Christ. Only. It is not in trying harder. It is only in yielding to Jesus Christ. Some of you today need to do that maybe for the very first time. And invite Him into your life to say, Jesus, please come in and save me. Others need to say, Lord, I give you these desires. I give you these emotions, these thoughts. I give you my temptations, my sin. And I'm turning from it. And I want your strength to help me to stop it early, to own it, to remember God's standards and to access God's power. Make that your prayer this morning. And walk away knowing that you have victory through Jesus Christ. He'll give you victory. That's what he's designed you for. Lord, I'm thankful this morning that on that slippery slope of temptation, Lord, that you are ready at any point to grab our hand and pull us back. So, Lord, help us to recognize our desires and what triggers those. Lord, to stop those things early, to not let our emotions get tied up. And, Lord, ultimately, to take you seriously. To be authentic Christians, 
We take you seriously. We take sin and temptation seriously. Help us to be that kind of church, those kinds of people. Lord, I pray that you would show the way out to those folks who are so trapped this morning by a variety of things. That you give them victory. Show them how it can be won. Show them your power, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.